Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Kaya FM 95.9. Reports with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Good evening, Afropolitans. It is indeed the law report, but this is not Michael Motoning Bill. It's Cassie Tolles sitting in for Michael today, who is still on leave. It is an interesting week because we know politically there's a lot going on with the ANC, but also quite importantly, earlier today, they had an emergency coronavirus command council meeting. We still don't know what the deliberations from that meeting were, but one interesting aspect of it is what exactly could they do that is different to what has already been announced in this level three that we're on. And on that note, we will We'll be speaking to two of the industries that are probably at risk, if you want to see that way, of being um, at the receiving end of whatever new regulations are on, and that is the alcohol and the tobacco industry. So we'll be talking to them and asking them on their reflections on what has happened and what might happen. And then later on, we are talking the state of the judiciary. Remember last month, the Chief Justice of the Republic of South Africa delivered what may well be his last state of the judiciary address, because we know that this is his last year as the Chief Justice. There may well be a brand new Chief Justice by the time the new report is tabled at the end of this year. That's what's happening over the next hour in the Law Report with Kasi Tole. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. So Afropolitans, we do recall that towards the end of last year, at the very height of the festive season, we had a family meeting. And at that family meeting, the president said, with immediate effect, alcohol is banned again. And this was based on the understanding that banning the sale of alcohol would have some positive spin-offs. At least that is the view of the National Coronavirus Command Council, that it has positive spin-offs on our ability to contain infections. We know that over the past 10 days, at least, the rate of infections has been escalating. The fatalities have been at record highs and it's really the height of the second wave and the ban on alcohol is something that the government still thinks is an instrument that can be used to contain this. Also there is this problem that we saw last year during hard lockdown when not only alcohol was banned but also tobacco was banned and I think for a lot of people while the alcohol conversation was probably easier to articulate in that when people are drinking they tend to behave in different ways they tend to congregate it wasn't so clear when it came to the tobacco ban and during that whole uh, hard lockdown the, the tobacco industry was up in arms saying that well by keeping us off the market you're actually opening up space for the illicit market to thrive and interestingly there were a lot of court cases and when there were court cases the government then said, well, never mind, we're down, <laughs> moving away from level five down to level three. And a lot of people then said, OK, maybe that point is moot. However, this week, it then turned out that the government has then decided that having listened to what the Western Cape High Court said by calling the ban on tobacco unconstitutional, the government is aggrieved with that decision and they've decided to appeal. So now a lot of people are asking the simple question of, well, if the ban on, on tobacco only occurred during level five and we're not at level five and the point is moot because you haven't banned tobacco why would you go and appeal this so that's a question that a lot of people have been trying to figure out but of course the one organization that is at the heart of this is the fair trade independent tobacco association and we are now joined by snentlanta mgoni who is the chairman good evening snentlanta good evening Kaya. thank you uh, for having me on your show so this week, the government decides that a matter that a lot of us thought was dead in the water because, of course, even though the Western Cape High Court had ruled in favor of the tobacco industry, the ban had been lifted, which means that it didn't really matter what the judgment had said. However, now the government has decided to go back to court. Why do you think that means? Look, um, that, that um, decision by government definitely took us by surprise. 
Um, it would be speculative of me to, to, to state exactly what it means, but my, my reading of the situation um, is that government looks like they may want to, you know, have no obstacles in their way should they in future want to implement a ban of this nature again. And I think they, they're not looking at it uh, as a level three, four or five type situation, but they are worried about the, the, the judgment and, and, and um, the ratio which was arrived at in, in uh, making the decision to declare the, the ban on the sale of cigarettes unconstitutional and further that it was um, uh, not necessary in terms of Section 27.2 of the Disaster Management Act. Of course, if you look at it deeper, one may also think that government is also looking at potentially avoiding a situation where other industries or affected parties latch on to this judgment and use that as some sort of uh, uh, a gate to go through in, in challenging regulations which um, government puts in place in future to 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 um, deal with the spread of the virus. At the beginning of hard lockdowns, I think we can all acknowledge that very few of us, whether at policy level or even, you know, citizens knew exactly how the coronavirus was going to uh, spread across the world. The data was still very fresh. People were saying it gets transmitted in this way. These masks don't work. Those temperatures do work. So at the beginning, perhaps there was a justification in the state saying that until we know better, perhaps even the cigarettes um, may need to be justifiably banned. But I think obviously now having had at least nine months of lockdowns and having had nine months of data coming through across the world is a a justification to saying that actually when people are smoking and they're sharing cigarettes this is yet another instrument or variable of how the coronavirus pandemic can spread is there still merit in that reasoning look i think to you and i uh, 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 there is no merit to, to 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 a decision of that nature i mean we know much more now than we did back then and of course um, you know, with, with COVID-19, there's been a lot of sort of data being bandied about uh, by different uh, avenues and people taking um, um, what they feel exacerbates the disease and so forth. And we've never sort of uh, received any data or evidence which suggests that the smoking of cigarettes or the sale of cigarettes or, or anything associated with cigarettes and tobacco-related products um, exacerbates the, the, the virus or, or, or um, results in the spread of the virus. So I, I don't think... Um, that, that is the case. But of course, um, unfortunately, um, with the cigarette ban and the five months within which it was in place, nothing made sense. I mean, there was no desire, for instance, from government to even engage industry and say, listen, this is what we are seeing and this is the reason for us implementing the ban. It was almost a case of we are putting this, base, uh, this ban in place, whether you like it or not, and we're not going to tell you why. And of course, this was um, the great travesty in that an industry that contributes so much to the fiscus, which acknowledges, of course, that there are certain um, um, bad effects to smoking, um, was, was sidelined in that manner. Yeah. You know, it's Netland that you mentioned that perhaps one of government's reasoning is that they feel or they fear that if this judgment is not challenged, another industry or other industries may actually use the same approach and then say, well, why are we being banned? This is unconstitutional. It's already been proved in the tobacco case. And that's probably going to be a big issue for the alcohol industry. We now have Lucky Dimane, who's from the National Liquor Traders Association, joining us on the line. Lucky, I mean, uh, we heard a couple of weeks ago that government said we have to ban tobacco, uh, alcohol again until at least the 15th of January. And of course, this was at the heart of the festive season, which historically is probably the most profitable time for the industry itself. What has been, uh, you know, the reaction of the industry since then? Uh, good evening and good evening to our guests. Uh, look, we, 
we were taken aback, obviously, by the announcement by uh, the president to close us again for the third time uh, in, in this uh, current lockdown uh, scenario, which then takes us to almost over 100 days that we haven't been able to operate. And you are correct. You know, December provides a good opportunity for us to be able to make good uh, enough margins. But importantly in, uh, for last year is that we're going to be able to actually even try and recover some of the lost sales as a result of the previous uh, two bands. So we were taken aback and uh, we, we, we are equally concerned that, you know, the, the attitude by government seems to be that, you know, we will not be able to operate come the 15th of January. Hence, our education to government to say, look, you need to be able to make a decision that allows us to be able to operate. Otherwise, you know, we might have to see moves uh, that uh, resembles the one that got taken by one of the industry partners. Yeah. I mean, Lucky, we saw an interesting picture on New Year's Day and New Year's Eve coming from Baragana Hospital, which says that for the first time in its history, its trauma unit was completely empty. And of course, historically, what happens on those days, the 31st of December and the 1st of January, there's a lot of festivities, there's a lot of people parting way into the night. And that has always been the, fina- the fundamental reason for why the trauma units used to be fully occupied. Surely, if somebody then puts that on the table and says, well, look at the benefits, at least to the healthcare sector of us banning alcohol, doesn't that put a leg up on the government side to say, actually, this is fully justified? We actually see it a bit different. I think what happened on the 31st of uh, December or the festive season is that uh, the law enforcement officials were doing their job efficiently uh, more than they've been doing in the past few years. So I think uh, it's, 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 it, uh, we need to commend their hard work. It is their efforts that make sure that we have a peaceful night, uh, peaceful, peaceful season, that was free of trauma cases being reported to Baraguana. And we understand that Solomon Kweke also had low numbers. So that has nothing to do with alcohol because alcohol was still available. It is still available today as I'm talking to you. But I think the government's view would be that because it wasn't as widespread, at least the, 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 you know, the ability to buy alcohol during those days wasn't as widespread as it was before. There was also the national curfew. It isn't just the law enforcement being more proactive because I'm thinking the people that used to be beating up each other or donoring each other on then one December didn't stop doing that because there wasn't necessarily a police uh, van at every corner in every township. So I would think that the argument that it was law enforcement that made it happen is a bit weak in light of the fact that actually the reasons people have to have law enforcement coming out is that the people get drunk and then they beat themselves up. So how would you um, reason on that one? I think we need to understand uh, how big the illicit or illegal trading of alcohol is in the country. It's uh, about 12.6 billion rand a year industry. Uh, that obviously cost the taxpayer and the government uh, fiscal around uh, six billion on an annual basis. So this is a big market that we, we did not undermine. So as I'm saying to you that you know the industry is thriving now, that illegal industry that I'm talking about, and it was thriving in that uh, in that uh, last part of the festive season, which was the, the, the first of December. So alcohol was freely available, uh, and I can assure you of that. So the law enforcement officials' efforts in this must not be undermined simply because there's a narrative that seeks to say that because liquor was not available, as there were no issues. Uh, uh, with hospitals. COVID-19 is still continuing to be a surge in the country, even in the absence of alcohol. Uh, Lucky and Stentland, I think this question probably applies to both of you. I mean, Lucky just mentioned now that in spite of the fact that officially there is a ban, it's still available in one form or another. And for me, it's the question of this black market or the illicit trade. How big a problem is it for your respective industries? I'd like to start with you, Stentlandla. Look, I think uh, in, in as far as the tobacco industry, the, the illicit trade in cigarettes, even prior to the, the um, us going into the lockdown period, was quite a big industry. I mean, it's been documented historically, for instance, by the Nugent Commission, which looked at the affairs uh, of, of the South African Revenue Service, 
And I mean, there's been studies conducted by, by the University of Cape Town and so forth, which have estimated the industry, I mean, the, the illicit um, trade in cigarettes at that point prior to lockdown at about 30%. Uh, we, of course, saw then during the lockdown period that cigarettes were freely available. I mean, that, that same institution, the University of Cape Town, they did a study which stated that up, up to 93% of smokers were still able to access cigarettes um, during during the lockdown period. And, I mean, even at 7%, um, some of them just chose not to buy cigarettes. So it, it, it was as if there was no ban in place, and it shows you the magnitude and and, and and scale and, and of course, the resourcefulness of, of, of those who apply their trade in that particular space. And it's grown the market post the lifting of the ban quite substantially. And, of course, given the weaknesses of our law enforcement agencies, especially along our borders, it plays into the hands of these criminal syndicates who really just smuggle cigarettes through our uh, various border posts along our neighboring countries. Lucky, how big a problem is this for your industry? It is a big problem. A study that was conducted by Euromonitor uh, about two years ago uh, found that uh, the illicit trade of alcohol in the country uh, amounts to about 12 billion, which is a sector on its own. It's in fact almost equivalent to our uh, medium sized nuclear manufacturer in the country. So it's a big problem. In fact, it's been operating even before the lockdown. So what has now since happened is that uh, during this lockdown, when uh, we're not allowed to trade in alcohol, then these people are then able to take uh, their advantage and move into that gap and be able to flex their muscles and continue their operations if everything was normal and be it you know, in an illegal way. And I think, obviously, now that there is this possibility that the Command Council may come back with a different way of how uh, South Africa should be managing uh, this particular virus, what would you, as the alcohol industry in particular, recommend to the state? We know that on the 15th, the current regulations officially expire. And if the infection rates and the fatality rates remain the same, surely it will be foolhardy for anyone to then justify opening up rather than closing down. What would you say to that? Uh, we'll recommend to government, and this is something that we have written to them, that you know we allow liquor to be able to be available over a seven-day period on an off-premise basis, meaning that people are able to buy at a tavern, for example, and go and consume it at the comfort of their own homes. We, we don't think the narrative that seeks to justify banning alcohol uh, as, as a measure to stop the spread of COVID-19 is a wise one. If you look at the numbers in the past 10 days, they've been increasing in the absence of illegal trade of alcohol. So we feel that you know liquor should be able to be allowed to be sold in a legal way. The reason why it needs to be sold over a seven-day period is that you're then able to close off that gap of the illicit market that has taken hold and you're able to then have a legal environment operating which pays tax uh, to the coffers of the country. Yeah, you know, like one of the criticisms that has been leveled against the alcohol industry in particular is that perhaps not enough in the form of consumer education is championed by the industry itself, which is for it to say to people, look, if you are going to be consuming hard liquor, for example, you're probably better off doing from the comfort of your own home and staying away from spaces where people can congregate. During the past nine months of lockdown, do you think that the industry has played its part in saying that, look, guys, we know that there is obviously this anxiety from the state where the state feels that alcohol does contribute negatively to this pandemic. And if we are to, to be allowed to sell alcohol, this is what we think you should learn. This is how we think you should be conducting sales. Has the industry played its part there? Yeah, I think the industry has played its part. But there's two issues that you're raising. The one is uh, for people to consume liquor at home. And the other one is the age-old problem that we've been avoiding as a country, which is alcohol abuse. I think, let me take the, the alcohol abuse one. 
The alcohol industry has a partner called Awe.org where they invest over 180 million on an annual basis to address alcohol harm reduction issues. So if you go to any tavern, close to where you are, you will see that there are posters that talk to uh, issues of uh, behavioral change that seeks to promote responsible consumption of alcohol, but not only that, responsible trading of alcohol as well as, well as other uh, interventions. But these are not only uh, things that uh, reside in the poster. There are also programs that uh, liquor traders undergo that will ensure that they're empowered to be responsible traders and be able to educate their consumers accordingly so that they can continue to enjoy liquor in a responsible manner. I think the other issue, you know, it relates to COVID-19 specific uh, uh, intervention, which is encouraging people to consume liquor at home. This is something that we are driving very hard, as I'm talking to you today. I mean, uh, PE, to conduct a compliance program for liquor traders in this particular area. So our, our governors, even though they are closed, but they are willing to continue to learn and to sharpen their skills to ensure that they contribute positively towards government's uh, uh, efforts in fighting COVID-19 pandemic, even when they're, making, they're not making any income whatsoever in the process. Snetlantla, I mean, also in relation to the tobacco industry, the government has always been very, very, very clear about the fact that there are, unfortunately, negative health consequences in relation to the consumption of tobacco, whether you're looking at people that um, eventually contract lung cancer, for example. So in relation to what the government's approach has been to say that we're willing, we, want, we want to ban the sale of tobacco in this instance, how prevalent or at least how prominent has been the scientific question around here has the industry come back and said well actually scientifically you banning it for a limited period of time does not permanently win people off uh, tobacco addiction addiction for example have we seen enough science emerging over the past nine months to sort of argue one way or another definitely look i mean i, I think i think that is exactly the argument so uh, in fact what we're finding with david is, is that a, a, a immediate cessation of of, of, of smoking is actually worse um, in the initial phases for, for the smoking that it, it, it impacts not only the immune system but it also has, according to psych- psychiatric experts, uh, an impact on, on, on the mental well-being of a smoker, especially those who use it as a coping mechanism. We, we've actually got literature um, uh, from a number of experts which shows that a lot of, for instance, um, drug abusers and people who have suffered some sort of post-traumatic disorders use smoking. As, as a coping mechanism, and of course, once you take that away, um, it, 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 it has an impact on those people. And then further, of course, um, smoking, given that nicotine is an addictive substance, um, it, 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 um, it, it's, it's unlikely that those that smoke are, uh, are forced to smoke are going to immediately accept the decision by government to force them to smoke, and they will try and source cigarettes through, through any means necessary. Uh, further, um, as you alluded to in your question, there has been no no um, um, scientific evidence which has shown that, given the, the short period within which uh, um, the ban is likely to be in place, it will improve the condition of the lungs to a point where it will have an impact should one, for instance, contract any disease which is likely to be deleterious to, to the lungs. So um, what we're saying is that it, it, it is not uh, founded in science. We accept that, of course, there are health benefits to, to people stopping smoking, but a, a person that has smoked for 50 years is not all of a sudden going to get a, a clean pair of lungs um, because they're forced to stop smoking as a result of the ban. So, of course, constitutionally, we're saying that uh, people should be allowed to, to choose whether they want to smoke or not. And, of course, I mean, if, if, if government can prove that there is a direct link between smoking and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the contraction of the virus or the spreading of the virus, 
we will then accept that. But, but um, with the medical evidence we've had at our disposal, that has not been the case. Thanks. Lucky, I mean, we saw earlier on today SAB issuing a press statement that they, while they are in support of government's actions aimed at controlling the spread of the virus, they do not believe that this alcohol ban is constitutional and they'll be approaching the courts for some relief. Will you guys be joining them in that action? Uh, no, no, I think it's too, it's too uh, premature for me to make any comment uh, around that. That's the sensitive matter that the industry is is engaging on as I'm talking to you right now. So I will not really want to make any comment with regards to that. Okay, now thank you very much to my two guests, Lakin Dimane from the National Liquor Traders Association and also Snentland Lamgoni representing the tobacco industry. Afropolitans, after the break, we're talking the state of the judiciary. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. Afropolitans, welcome back. This is the Law Report, but this is not Michael Motoning Bill. This is Cassie Tolle sitting in for Michael today. Last month, at the end of the year, the Chief Justice actually delivered his latest version of the State of the Judiciary Report, which seeks to explain to us exactly where the judiciary is, where he'd like it to be, and what are the things that worry him the most. And in the back of that conversation, we then got together and had a conversation with the Ministry of Justice and Constitutional Development, represented by the spokesperson Crispin, Crispin Peary and also Alison Tilly, who is an attorney, representing the matters relating to the litigation or the justice industry. This is how that conversation went. Afropolitans, good evening. Uh, recently, the Chief Justice delivered the annual judicial report. The purpose of the report is obviously just to give us insight into the state of the judicial system in South Africa across its multiple forms. So what we thought would be quite interesting is to actually reflect on the state of the judiciary with two individuals who have a very intimate understanding of the type of things that the Chief Justice would have been talking about last week. For a lot of us, obviously, when we see how the judicial system works, it's when we see the big profile cases that are on TV and we start thinking maybe that is really the crux of the justice system. But of course, it's far more complicated than that. There are too many moving parts that a lot of us do not understand. So I'm now joined on the line by Crispin Spiri, who is the spokesperson for the Ministry of Justice and Correctional Services, and also Alison Tilly, who's the attorney and coordinator of Judges Matter. Firstly, Alison, I'd like to put this question to you. Can you just tell our listeners what is the importance of this report that the Chief Justice delivers every single year, telling us about the state of the judiciary? Well, I think one of the most important things is that the Chief Justice is using the opportunity to account on behalf of himself and the judiciary uh, to the South African public to explain how it is the judiciary works and what he thinks is working and what the challenges are. All right. And I think, obviously, when we do see a report of this nature, one of the important elements is just exactly how accessible it is. And when I talk about accessibility, do people have the ability to then say, well, he's delivered the report, we understand what it means, or does it, just like many other reports that we see in South Africa, suffer from the fact that actually maybe the language limitations means that far too many people aren't in a position to actually understand what the judicial report is all about. Have we managed to bridge that gap? Does this become the type of report that when people hear, it's about to be delivered, and when they listen to the, hey, I know exactly what it means, and I know what to do next? The difficulty with, with, with all of these things is that, firstly, not I think people don't necessarily know why it's a good report to read. I mean, I think if you just say to people, you know, read the annual judiciary report, doesn't really sound very compelling, does it? But... Um, the other problem is, of course, that it's, it's, it is written in, in legal language. So I think there's, there's probably a couple of things that we could 
do to help make it more accessible. Um, and that's probably something that, that Judges Matter will, will do. We've certainly done that before when we've had the, the report come through to just try and unpack it and explain a bit more about what the Chief Justice is talking about and why it's important. Yeah. Crispin, I mean, the, the, the importance of the report, I'd like to pose the same question that I posed to um, Alison earlier on, is that obviously the fact that we do see it every single year means that it forms an important part of whether you call it accountability or just at least creating the awareness amongst the general public that this is where we are. Can we see progress or can we track progress? So in your view as the department, what is the importance of the report of this nature? What does it say to you and what do you guys then say, hey, we learned this this year, this is what we need to do in order to inform our program of action for the next year, for the next two years. How does this report translate into an action plan for the department? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Um, I think the first difficulty is that uh, from where we sit as a department or as a ministry, we can't necessarily speak of the state of the judiciary, but we can speak of the state of the justice system. Um, and that's because we have um, the the trias politica, which is the, the three spheres of, of government. The judiciary on its own is an independent entity. Um, Parliament would be an independent entity and the executive would be an independent entity. Um, but our responsibilities would somehow, in this case, they do, um, not I wouldn't say overlap, but they do, to some extent, um, find each other's hands sort of in the same, in the same pot. Um, and in this instance, what we could speak to, especially on the, on the question of access to justice, um, you, you say uh, having this report mainly in English, does it actually help people to understand um, what is in that report? Well, I think that's a problem across, if it is a problem, across the whole government as a whole. Like Most government departments do release annual reports, um, which are public documents and are accessible to the public, and they should be made accessible in all official languages. Um, and, and that's something that can be easily sorted out. But a real access to justice Kaya really happens at the cold face of the system. So when people actually interact with the system um, on a day-to-day basis, do they have the ability to to hear the judicial proceedings in a language of their choice? And as a Department of Justice, we do pride ourselves in that ability to ensure that you have access to a translator. Um, and even if you are a foreign national, you would have access to a translator in your own language, whether it be it Yaruba or be it Spanish. Um, we are able to provide such a service. And that really goes a long way in making justice a lot more accessible to yeah. people who are engaging in those proceedings at the time. Crispin, I mean, that uh, that interaction you know, between the executive and the judiciary is obviously something that is at the center of this because what you want to be able to remember is that we want to sort of honor the independence of the two structures, but also the fact that no one can operate in a vacuum. At the end of the day, if the the Chief Justice is to come out and say, look, I need a particular allocation of resources in order to improve this within, you know, the system of how our our courts work, it will have to be ultimately the executive that says, yes, you can have that extra one rand, you can have that extra ten rand. How does that? How, how how do these interactions work? Is it something that then says, okay, as a department, this is what we've committed to you as a functionary of, well, I suppose a subset of the of the other department itself. You just have to make what you can with the resources that we've allocated to you. Or is this something that informs a conversation that then says, okay, now that you've written this particular report, now that you've highlighted these particular issues, by the time we talk about how much to allocate to you within the next budgeting cycle, we already have an awareness of what the limitations are. So this is how much we're willing to put in in this particular stage in order to fix that particular problem. Or is this simply a matter of 
both arms have the type of autonomy that simply says, hey, work with the budget that we have, and if there are any issues, we'll see whatever happens next. Kaya, I must concede we don't have a settled model on how we um, administrate um, the justice system in South Africa. So the relationship currently between the judiciary and the executive is at best what I can call interdependent. So as we would understand it, the judiciary in the main would ensure that they are there to deliver the judgments and adjudicate the law. But the administration around, for instance, how the type of resources that are required um, and how to make the justice system more accessible in a way that even a judicial officer um, would find acceptable, for instance, digitizing the justice system. Um, that is something that is done through an office, a national department which we call the Office of the Chief Justice. And, and I want to emphasize that it is a national department, which means that it falls under the purview of the executive, but it's called the Office of the Chief Justice. So it's not necessarily the private Office of the Chief Justice, but a national department that oversees the administration of the judiciary. And from a day-to-day basis, the Secretary General of the, of the Office of the Chief Justice would be able to give the minister uh, an overview of what is required from a resource point of view for us to have a smooth um, administrative process for the justice system. But she would also then interact with the Chief Justice um, to, to, to get from them what is required for us to have a, a, a smooth administ- administrative process in our justice system. And then ultimately that report gets tabled to Parliament and you would know that uh, most budgets are what we call voted for and that that vote would then be approved by Parliament and that's how the Office of the Chief Justice, quote, National Department, then gets um, to service both the judiciary and the aspirations of the executive ensuring that um, we have uh, the, the justice system is a lot more accessible. And ensuring that the justice system is accessible is an executive priority, but it is also something that is a question of justice for judicial officers. So it's an inter- interdependent relationship um, to some extent. And we must say that it is something that is on the agenda of the minister to ensure that we have what we call a single administrative model that really resolves um, the difficult questions of interdependence because sometimes the lines of the executive and the judiciary do come into sharp focus and we need to be able to really understand how we navigate such situations when they do occur. Alison, I mean, the question of interdependency is probably the best way to describe what I was trying to refer to earlier. And Crispin says, yes, they are interdependent. But of course, it also comes on the basis of us saying they are the three arms of the state. They're supposed to be independent of each other. What does it mean? I mean, how does that translate to say that we are an independent judiciary when actually the type of things that will enable us to be more effective in delivering justice to all citizens is actually dependent on the question of whether the executive is in a position to allocate resources that are necessary to get us there at any point in time. Should we be looking for a different way of doing this? Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting question. We've, we've really had the, the language we use, I appreciate the, the sort of, you know, long words, but we talk about institutional independence and adjudicative independence. And I think the adjudicative independence, the independence of our courts and making their own decisions and not being swayed by the executor, I think we're really proud of that. And I think the South African judiciary both at in, in the high courts, the superior courts, and in the magistrates' courts. You know, we're, we're known for, for our very independent judges and magistrates. But there's this question of what we talk about institutional independence. And that's 
also really important. I mean, it, it may not sound as important, but if the lifts don't work, if the air conditioning doesn't work, if you can't get access to law books, that really impacts on your ability to deliver good judgments and be an independent judge. So we have to think about both. We've thought about it more in relation to high courts through the Office of the Chief Justice. Not a really good name for it. It's more like the Office of the Judges. Maybe it would be a better way of talking about it. And then in the magistrate's courts, still quite heavily reliant on the Department of Justice. So that's certainly some wrinkles that we'll be thinking about. Kristen says, um, you know, correctly that, that that's something that the issue of a single judiciary would have to think about and try and work a way through. Because, you know, at the end of the day, independence, you know, it, it, it is about money. Um, no doubt about it. And you have to make sure who runs the budget, who's accountable, who raises it, who spends it, all of those things in order to ensure that you have both kinds of independence. Yeah, that's quite an important distinction. Crispin, I mean, a lot of people, when they think of the justice system, it's the high court, maybe the Supreme Court, but the constitutional court. In South Africa, we tend to see a lot more issues at the high court level, a lot more issues at the constitutional court level. But perhaps an an equally important part of the system is the magistracy. And I think for a lot of people, their primary interaction with the justice system is not going to be at the high court level, will probably never be at the Supreme Court level, and rarely will it ever be at the constitutional court level. It is actually at the point in time where you have that small matter of Kaya having failed to repay you your 100 rand that was owed to you and then you're looking for some recourse from the justice system and it's the magistrates that actually plays a very important role in dealing with just a lot of the issues that materialize on a single day. But a lot of people aren't even aware that we have a magistrate system aren't even aware of how it's funded or how it interacts with the rest of the justice system. Should we be starting perhaps another educational session on telling people that actually it's not always about the corn court. You may see it on TV, but that's actually the net result of a much bigger ecosystem. Or do you think that people are fully aware of what it is that makes up the justice system? I think people are fully, uh, uh, might, they might not be um, very well versed, but they are aware of what makes up the justice system. In fact, um, a lot of people's first interaction with the justice system, the example that you use, would be actually a small claims court. And it's quite an informal process where you can even represent yourself. You don't need a legal representation. And you can go there and sue Kaya for your thousand rent and you fill in a formal summons and get them served and, and you're good to go. Uh, I think most people actually are quite familiar with the small claims court. And then from there, I think people would also be uh, quite familiar with the magistrate court because, as you would have seen in some of the high-profile bail applications, most of those actually take place in a magistrate court, so not necessarily the high court. Then only the trial, you'd then find that in high-profile cases, most of the time, take place in high court, and then, of course, the appeal process would then take place in the appellate courts right up to the constitutional courts. But in the main, a lot of things happen in the magistrate courts. Also, divorces, for instance, people are quite familiar that if you want to get a divorce, you have to go to the magistrate's court. So I think, of course, we can always improve in spreading the knowledge about the justice system because the more people know, the better they are able to access the justice system and ensure that their rights are duly exercised. And that's something that definitely we, we would be pursuing through our public education units. And it's something that we're quite open to. But I think one of the vantage points of having high-profile cases in the media is that people do interact with the justice system, at least from a distance, and they're able to see, for instance, what Dolores Eventual is in the 
case of the Oscar Pistorius trial, or in the recent events, they get to see what really happens in bail proceedings. One of the most unfortunate things about the public discourse around the criminal justice system in South Africa is that people often equate an arrest to justice. So, a loxin was whining but that is just the first phase of us ensuring that we administer justice. One has to test it so that they appear and they are duly charged. And people are now getting to see that as okay, so even if you, you are released on bail, it means that you have your due day in court doesn't mean that just because you're out of bail, the system has failed. And quite often we hear people say, no, Kaya was arrested on Friday. On Monday, he's back. Ganja, the system has failed. Not knowing that he's been duly judged and will be able to appear at some point. So people are learning through this process, through to the adults. But to some extent, I, I would argue that people are somewhat familiar with the justice. Yeah. Alison, um, I mean, I've just been reading a particular report about the banking system where for them, the question of access to financial services has multiple elements, including the question of is there a, a, a fully functional bank, is there an ATM within a particular radius? And in the context of the justice system, when people talk about access, is this something that is the net result of me saying that, hey, within my particular community, if I want to be able to access a small claims court, for example, a magistrate court or even a high court, it is accessible with within, I don't know, an hour or 100 kilometers. How do we define access to justice in the context of people being able to say, I've got a dispute that obviously requires some Mm. legal intervention. What's the definition of access to justice in that context? The question about access to justice, I think you can be a homeless person living on the street in front of a high court and you don't have access to justice. It's not your physical proximity to a court. It's often what you can afford. And I think that that's something that, you know, we're very concerned about. South Africa, we have we have an extensive system of paralegals. We have Legal Aid South Africa. There, there are different ways um, the justice system has tried to make sure that it is accessible. But you, you do have to realize that yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of things. You have to know that you've got rights. You have to be able to claim them. You have to literally travel to the, the courts. Um, you know, you, you have to be able to, in, in civil cases, you have to be able to pay for a lawyer. So I think access to justice is quite a complicated thing. It's, it's not just having an ATM. You, you, you have to have quite a lot more going on and you have to understand you have that right in the first place. So, so that's also a very important part of the system. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. Kaya Breakfast. Kaya Breakfast. Let's talk about the issue of security at the border post to prevent the illegal crossings. The sort of commercial defense force around the bridge had increased its, uh, its personnel and they had a plan of dealing with the border line. On top of personnel, they even had a speedboat that was patrolling the waters in the sections where people are crossing. The strengthening of the border line contributed to a lot more people going there hoping that they'll be able to go in and when they were not able to go in they then had to go back into Zimbabwe. Okay, Sia Bosa, spokesperson for the Minister of Home Affairs. Kaya Breakfast every Monday to Thursday from 6 to 9 a.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. Can I partner with a bank that's as dynamic as my growing business? With ABSA, I can. Business Evolve Zero is a bank account with Cashflow Manager, an integrated tool that creates quotes, generates invoices, runs my payroll and more, while keeping an eye on my debtors and creditors. All this at no monthly fee. It's a solution that evolves as my business grows. Open an ABSA Business Evolve Zero account online today. We do more so you can. That's Africanacity. 
APSA is an authorized FSP and a registered credit provider. C's and C's apply. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back, Afropolitans. This is The Law Report. Cassie Toller sitting in for Michael Motoneng Bill. We are discussing the state of the judiciary with Crispin Perry and Alison Tillim. Just before the break, Alison was talking to us about the question of access to justice. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. I think one of the key issues, of course, is, is that just because access is there in terms of proximity doesn't mean that the system is accessible. If I want to be able to have a matter, you know, um, um, presided over by a judicial officer, the cost of getting there is quite prohibitive for a lot of people. Mm. And I think particularly when people see only the High Court as a, as a place of recourse, just to be able to file the type of documents that are necessary in order for my dispute mm. to be on their own, that's quite prohibitive. Are we as South Africans working towards making justice more accessible? In other words, trying to at least contain the costs so that people can feel that the system legitimately represents all of us rather than saying, well, it's really a matter of how much money you have. Mm. Well, perhaps, perhaps the question isn't really whether we're trying. I would concede that we're trying. The question is whether we're succeeding. And I think that that's, that's, a, hard, that's a hard one to answer because... Certainly, costs on a high court are well beyond that of the ordinary South African, even somebody who would be described in in South Africa as as middle class. I would say that the the costs of a high court action are probably beyond the means of of most South Africans. Probably the same with magistrates' courts. I mean, it's it's not quite as expensive, but just in terms of having your conflict resolved, that's why a lot of people end up going to street committees or in, in some areas you'll have a traditional court which might even sit in an urban area um, because because it's it's cheap, it's quick. You know, you walk through the door and you can have somebody talking to you about your matter relatively quickly. In the high court, you can wait for years. I think we have, we have aspirations. I think we try, no doubt about that. But if you ask me if ordinary people have access to justice on a daily basis, I'm, I'm not sure that the answer would be an unequivocal yes. Yeah. And Alison, one of the things that came out from the Chief Justice's address when he was delivering this report is perhaps the idea that a more automated system would enable a lot more people to gain access to it. And I think the one example that he used, for example, is that if it turns out that I've got a matter being heard in a particular city, I have the burden of then carrying the cost of getting myself there. If there's a delay, I then have to, you know, find my accommodation and come back the next day. So for a lot of people, really, the logistics of just being able to even present themselves in order for their matter to be heard or to participate in the matter is indeed prohibitive. And I would have been thinking, Actually, perhaps over the past six months when we've seen how some of these things can be done online, then there's an opportunity to say, well, actually, in order for you to be able to participate in the case involving you, you don't necessarily have to drive to wherever the high court is. As long as you can be able to go to a place, whether it is another uh, you know, organ of the state, to be able to say, I've got a matter that I need to participate in. I need you know, stable Wi-Fi. I need a stable connection. Can I sit here and log in and participate? That is the type of thing that I sort of got from the uh, Chief Justice his message but of course unfortunately his message was diluted by other things but is this now the learning that we might actually take from what we've seen over the past six months to say if we do understand that access and accessibility remain an ongoing problem these are some of the things that we can start considering to say how do we actually narrow the gap between people saying i want a matter to be heard but hey i can't afford to have my justice delivered absolutely i think i think in some ways i take i take that away both as a positive and a negative 
I mean, a positive in the sense, yes, we've seen courts running on Zoom, where apparently before it was completely impossible and nobody could do it, and now all of a sudden we found it because we had to. We figured out how to, and, and it clearly is possible. The downside of it is that what we've also exposed is that for a lot of courts, and, and perhaps not, not the high courts, but, but even there, access to the internet, a stable Wi-Fi connection for the courts is an issue. We did some research around magistrates and, and the access you know, that they have. Uh, one of the issues that they have is that they don't have recent laptops with webcams. You know, uh, I don't know when anybody last sold a laptop without a webcam, but you know, a high-end laptop back in the day, I guess they didn't have them. And we have magistrates sitting here saying, well, we can't do hearings online on Zoom, for example, because the laptop just isn't up to spec. I think there's, there's certainly, it's shown us what we can do, but it's also shown us what we need to do to get there. And that, again, comes back to the issue of budgets and, you know, making sure that the resources are available. Crispin, I mean, we've been talking with Alison about the question of access and accessibility. And I think just before we lost you there for a moment, the question that I pose is in the eyes of the department in an ideal world when we talk about access to justice is it simply a matter of well in every community there is at least one form of a court whether it's a civil claims court whether it's a magistrate court or even a high court uh, for some people or is this something that we're still trying to figure out to say at what point in time can we say confidently that actually South Africans have got equal access to justice I think it, it does it does involve ensuring that people have access to a court within their locality. So, for instance, one of the things that the minister has done is he's passed a regulation which says that now magistrate courts can hear all civil cases up to a certain level. But generally, magistrate courts can hear all civil cases, whereas in the past, uh, magistrate courts could only hear certain matters. So, for instance, if you lived in the Tata, and you wanted to get divorced, you could not get divorced in Tata. You'd have to go all the way to... Or if you lived in a village near Tata, you could not get divorced at your village. You'd have to go all the way um, Tata to get divorced. So that that is one way of ensuring that we have access to justice. But I think also what you are speaking to is having the making the justice system and judicial proceedings a lot more efficient and, and a lot more yeah efficient and effective. And what you would find, for instance, that maybe some extent is that you find some practitioners would say to a client, look, I'm not available. I'm in France for the next couple of months. But I can only be available for a hearing on such and such a date. But now in the world of Zoom, really, you can really conduct your, your clients hearing from wherever you are in the world. And that really does then make at least the wheels of justice move a lot more quicker than, than what they normally do in the, in the normal world where a judicial officer or even a, a practitioner may not be available because they're in a different part of the world. Now, with Zoom and all those video conferencing um, facilities, uh, that's no longer necessarily an excuse. But also, from the state's point of view, where you'd have proceedings, uh, criminal proceedings, one of the things that the minister has really stressed, and we've seen it taken up, been taken up a lot during court, is what we call individual has. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes, we can hear you again. This is when an individual has to appear for, for bail in a court, but let we all know that that proceeding would be postponed. We now have ability uh, in at least the metros to have an individual, whilst in a correctional facility, appear via video conferencing directly into the magistrate's court, and then the, the, the magistrate is able to at least postpone that sentence or that remand, that hearing to another day. We think that's a significant step because it not only makes the criminal justice system a lot more effective, but from
from a correctional services point of view, we save a great deal of money um, from transporting uh, a, a remand detainee from a correctional facility into the magistrate's court, having them there the whole day, security and all of that. We no longer have to do that. We just simply have to move them from one room um, to another where there's video conferencing facility and we get the, 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 the hearing remanded. That's a significant step and that's something that we'd have to also roll out across the country. Yeah. Um, so that we show that you know it's something that that is uniform across the board. Yeah, Alison, this giant leap forward into the technological age, which would enable us to actually achieve these things that you and Crispin have been talking about, is of course a question of funding. And in relation to the justice system, the unresolved tension is well, if Kaya has got ten thousand rand, then he can you know um, put through to support this cause. Why should he not be allowed to? Particularly if the state says, hey. In the age of competing resources, we are not in a position to immediately roll out all this infrastructure that is going to get us to, go, uh, to, to be in a position to deliver justice in a manner that we've just described. But of course, I think the tension that we speak to here is that everybody's then going to say, well, what is agenda? Why is he fighting the judiciary? And I think the Chief mm. Justice has previously mentioned that he was offered a significant amount of money on a modernization project for the judiciary. He's never told us who offered him the amount of money, but he said that he rejected it on the basis that this will form part of, you know, a form of capture. But of course, the question here is, in an instance where we all universally agree, there's a consensus that we'll be much better off, that justice system will be much better served and our communities will be much better served if we had the type of automation, if we had the type of infrastructure that we're talking about. What are the risks associated with somebody, an individual, a corporate donor, whoever else coming up and saying, actually, I've got the amount of money. Can you take it and make this happen? Well, money never comes without strings in my experience. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe your experience is different. But, but if somebody's prepared to cut you a large check, um, and it might be, for example, looking at... Um, uh, a donor who is part of a particular IT system, uses a particular IT system, and they would say, well, we're prepared to make available X number of, of computers and monitors, and but you'll have to run using the software. And that may not be the best software to use, but there you are. You, you're then in a position where, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And I think that that's one of the things that we would need to try and avoid. If we had a stronger state technology agency, the CETA, which was in a position to really negotiate hard and get the right kind of systems which are open source, interoperable, you know, kind of the, the, the kind of thing that wouldn't lock you into one particular kind of software or another, that would be a different situation. So the issues around you know, who is making the donation and what exactly that looks like. We've had an interesting example recently with the National Prosecuting Authority um, who, you know, have been have been offered money by, by a number of different organizations and, and even governments and who've had to be very careful about taking that money because of perceived influence one way or the other. I think that if we are in a position to start looking at, at, at things like you know, making sure that judges have current up-to-date laptops and so do magistrates, that in and of itself would be a tender that would have to be very, very, very transparently managed because of all of these issues that, that are at play. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the key thing. And I think also with the National Prosecuting Authority, uh, the issue has indeed been mentioned that, yo, you don't want people to be putting money into this structure because it taints the question of the independence. Mm. Crispin, we were talking um, uh, about the questions around private funding. In the eyes of the department, what are the fundamental risks associated with Kaya saying, hey, I hear the Chief Justice says that he'd be better served if a computer system was much more modern. I've got a computer system. There you go, Chief Justice. What in the eyes of the department are the big risks associated with that type of approach? One of the major risks I think Alison has highlighted is that, of course, uh, if there are T's and C's, then really it's not something that we should even give a second look. But also one of the major things that we also need to apply ourselves to is how is that uh, donor funding process? It has to be very transparent. And uh, like I said, if there are T's and C's, then it's something that we really cannot entertain. But if it's a good Samaritan who says, you know what, I have a lot of cash to spare and I think the justice system could do with this cash, then then that has to be processed through the National Department of Treasury as well to ensure that they are the ones who are able to sit with those funds and ultimately allocate them to the required entity or to the required yeah, to the required institution. That that is generally how it works in the status quo in any event. Some institutions do function on, on donor funding and there's no harm to the state that is accrued because of that. Some states, for instance, have programs, uh, European states do give certain funding for certain projects within the Department of Justice. For instance, the EU does ensure that we are able to fund certain projects such as the development of human rights and, and so on. These things are not uncommon, but the question is, what is the best mechanism to process it so that it's transparent for everyone to see? And what if there are desired outcomes from the funder, then, then it's really something that we should we should look at very carefully. Yeah. I think, Crispin, one issue that people might raise is that this is actually something that has become quite urgent. So whether you're using the NPA as an example or even, you know, the Office of the Chief Justice and the report that they produce as an example to say, well, as a country, we now know that there's definitely a need for us to inject more money into strengthening these particular systems. We do know that private funding does exist in one form or another. Should we then be talking about establishing the principle and the mechanism for saying this, how we must do it? Bearing in mind that for a lot of people, the answer that says, well, through paying through taxes means that it goes through the general fiscus and by the time it gets to the general fiscus perhaps it's going to be so diluted by so many other competing interests people are going to be like but i wanted my money to go into the justice cluster and it didn't make its way there should we then be creating perhaps an avenue for people that do want to make those contributions specifically for the benefit of the justice system to be able to do so yeah in a way the model should still go through national treasury because ultimately that is the institution that is accountable for any form of funding that uh, government institutions dispense and use. Um, so from an accountability point of view, we would want to ensure that Treasury is able to, to process that payment or that, that sponsorship, um, but also then they are able to really stretch out what are the conditions for them, if any. Um, do these go against the national priorities of the state? Does it accrue any other risks that the state may incur at and Treasury is involved in that exercise most of the time. Uh, for instance, the Treasury is involved in getting funding from an institution like the IMF, um, and they would often have to weigh up whether that type of funding um, would actually, in the long run or in the short run, or at any point in our time, um, actually come to a great cost to the state. And so the, the, the institution that is able to best make that calculation, pun intended, is always going to be National Treasury. Yeah.
Okay, no, I agree with you, Crispin. And on that note, uh, Crispin and Alison, thank you very much for joining me. We are out of time, unfortunately, but I think the question of how our justice system needs to be assisted in order to be more effective and efficient is going to be something that we revisit every single year. Afropolitans, the Office of the Chief Justice has released a report on the state of the judiciary. The Chief Justice is the one that delivered it. And if you want to read up about really the types of issues that he says need to be focused on and the type of issues that they face as part of the justice system in order to be be able to deliver justice effectively and efficiently are all mentioned there so if you do have time do go through it it actually makes for some interesting reading and thank you very much to my two guests Alison and Crispin for joining me the law report on Kaya FM 95.9 and on that note Afropolitans this has been the law report Cassie Toller sitting in for Michael Motoring Bill I'm back again next week same time do join us and have a wonderful evening rewinding rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind visit kayafm.co.za for more